Hello, friends. This is Mark Heffley, and you're listening to the fourth episode of our on-the-go Lenten Bible study series on the Psalms. And this week, we have what may very well be one of your favorite psalms. I just googled most popular psalms, and Psalm 23 showed up as number one on several of the lists. So this psalm may be familiar to you. If it is, though, I would encourage you to slow down a bit as you read over it this week. Sometimes familiarity can cause us to pass over a text too quickly. At least that's true for me. So let's slow down and dive into Psalm 23. From beginning to end, the psalm is a prayer of trust with three main movements. First, the psalmist affirms his trust in the Lord as shepherd. Second, we're in the dark valley or the valley of the shadow of death, and the psalmist affirms his trust in God's protection. It ends with the Lord as a gracious host of a feast and the psalmist trusting that even in the sight of my enemies, the Lord will sustain him and give him joy. If you look closely, there's a cue that the middle, the dark valley, is actually the pivotal moment in the psalm. You see, on either end of the poem, the psalmist speaks of God in the third person. The Lord is my shepherd. He makes me lie down. He prepares the table before me. But in the dark valley, the psalmist speaks, the psalmist speaks much more intimately with God. I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and staff comfort me. In the Hebrew, in the early Greek translation, this you is emphasized. It's the equivalent of putting the you in italics. You are with me. Though easy to pass over, this shift to second person conveys a theological insight, which we also see play out in scripture and in the lives of the saints. And that insight is this. There's a connection between intimacy with God and the experience of suffering. This is one of the big mysteries of the Christian life. Now, let me clarify, it's not as though God needs suffering in order to draw us closer, nor is it the case that we need suffering and evil in order to appreciate the good. Christianity has never endorsed a yin-yang philosophy. It is because sin has been introduced into God's good world through humanity that suffering and death have become features of our lives. And God does not rejoice in this. He doesn't even rejoice in the death of the wicked. Yet God chose to make suffering and death the path to eternal life in Christ Jesus. Thereby, he refashioned them. And so there's a radical tension in the Christian life. We see this tension first in Jesus. Jesus wanted both to avoid and to embrace his suffering. You can check out these two at work in Luke 22, verse 15, and Luke 22, verse 42. His death was a result of sin and betrayal, but also a result of the Father's will. The cross was both an experience of shame and humiliation, as well as the greatest expression of love. Now, if there's a tension in Jesus' experience of suffering, then we shouldn't be surprised that we experience this tension too. But our psalm reminds us that in some mysterious way, suffering, even though God never rejoices in our suffering, suffering leads to intimacy with God. This tension is found in reading Psalm 22 and Psalm 23 together. The church has always seen in Psalm 22 a poetic depiction of the sufferings of Christ. And in this psalm, Psalm 22, God is he is quite distant. It begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
You can't get more distant than that. Yet as the psalm continues, the tone turns more and more to one of confident trust in God's presence and God's ability to save. And this confidence in the Lord brings the psalmist comfort, just as the rod and staff do in Psalm 23. Suffering and experiences of supposed distance from God are not inimical to real intimacy with God. We can cry out, why have you forsaken me? While we also have confidence that God is truly closer to us now than in our experiences of the green pastures. All right, let's take a look at the first movement. The first movement depicts the Lord as a shepherd. As discussed in past episodes, this metaphor was a common way in the ancient Near East to speak of a king. So too were the actions of leading to pasture and of watering. This shepherd king image is applied to God elsewhere in scripture too, but there's something a little unique about how it's used here. In other Psalms, for example, the image is a communal one. Like Psalm 80 verse 1, O shepherd of Israel, hear us. Or Psalm 100 verse 3, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. But here in our psalm, the image is made more personal. My shepherd. Another thing to point out is the connection to our first reading from 1 Samuel. In the episode recounted there, Samuel goes to Jesse's family to find a king, and he ends up anointing David. David is a shepherd, and so he becomes a great image, despite all of his faults, of the great king, the good shepherd to come. All right, the shepherd king does four things in our psalm. First, leads to pasture, and two, to water. Three, he restores or turns around one's soul, and four, he leads one in the path of righteousness. We'll come back to the first two when we discuss the third movement. For now, we can note the double meaning contained in the latter two actions. First, where the poem says, he restores my soul, the early Greek translation, which is the Septuagint, and the Septuagint was widely, widely cited by the New Testament authors and the early Christians. So in that translation, it has, he turns around my soul. This is cool because in the later biblical tradition, turning around denotes conversion. This is the literal meaning of Jesus' words, repent or turn around in Matthew 3 verse 2. The movement to the green pastures and still water goes by way of conversion. And this ties in beautifully with the fourth action. On one level, he leads me in paths of righteousness can simply mean God keeping the psalmist safe on, safe on his journey. And why would God do this? Because that is simply who God is. The psalmist has complete confidence in God's protection because of God's character and his covenant fidelity. This is what he means by saying, for his name's sake. A consistent feature in the Psalms is that they appeal very little to our own character or our good works. These are not the basis for our confidence and hope. Rather, the Psalms repeatedly appeal to God's character and God's fidelity. On another level, he leads me in paths of righteousness can denote following the commandments of the Lord. The image of paths or the way is used in this manner throughout scripture. For example, in Deuteronomy, we're told, you shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may, well, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land 
that you shall possess. That's Deuteronomy 5, verse 32 to 33. This language of the way is later taken up by followers of Jesus to refer to Christianity. Check out Acts chapter 9, verse 2. And what is this way? Well, at the time of the Psalms' original writing, the way was set out in the laws of the old covenant which God established with Israel through Moses. But Jesus reconstitutes the way. Though he doesn't abolish the law of the old covenant, he fulfills the law on the cross. The way of the cross then becomes simply the way. You can check out Mark 10 verse 52 for uh, a clever allusion to this. So as Christians, when we pray to be led on the path of righteousness, we are praying not only that God guard and protect us, but also that he help us follow Christ on the way of a cross-shaped life. Paul will unpack this more in Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 through 11. This cross-shaped life involves obeying God's word, renouncing our self-interest, and pursuing the good of our neighbors. Lent is a perfect time to begin doing this with, with renewed energy, but we must keep in mind what the psalm tells us. It is not us, but the Lord who turns us around, and the Lord who leads us up this path. In other words, he must initiate and sustain all of our efforts. All right, the second movement. Now, I already talked about the second movement and the Dark Valley a bit earlier, but here I just want to briefly point out the connection to our second reading from Ephesians. In that reading, Paul reminds us that you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. There's a difference between walking through the Dark Valley and living in the Dark Valley. We, in the language of Jesus, are to be in the world, but not of the world. Ironically, the Dark Valley can be a place of comfort for many, but for those who follow Christ, it will become, or it should become, the source of suffering and opposition. All right, third movement. The poem ends with the Lord providing nourishment, the table and cup, and honor, anointing the head, to the psalmist. What's depicted here, though, is not simply a good meal. It's a communal liturgical feast. This comes across even more clearly when read in the light of Christ. Christ, the good shepherd, leads us beside still waters and anoints our head with oil in the sacraments of baptism and confirmation. He then prepares the table of the Eucharistic bread and cup before us. On one hand, this poem expresses our hope of eternal life, the eternal banquet of heaven. On the other hand, this banquet is enjoyed in the presence of my enemies. We're not quite out of danger. It's as though Christ has invited us into his tent, the flaps are open, and we can see the enemy outside. Yet, this doesn't disturb the psalmist. His confident trust is not shaken. So, too, we celebrate the Eucharist, even in the midst of the dark valley, with dangers or at least sources of anxiety all around. Yet, the Holy Spirit leads us to express our confident trust through this psalm. All right, I wanted to close with uh, talking about our psalm and the gospel reading, the man of the man born blind in John 9. In our gospel this weekend, we have a rather long account from John about a man born blind who's healed by Jesus. 
And like many elements of our psalm, this story can also be read on two levels. First, it's about the healing of physical blindness. On a deeper level, though, the physical blindness is a symbol or a sign of spiritual blindness, of living in the dark valley. As this man comes to physically see, he also comes to see Jesus with a deeper mode of seeing. Look at the first time the man talks about Jesus. He refers to him simply as the man called Jesus. As the story goes on, though, he calls Jesus a prophet and later as a man from God. This progression of deeper and deeper sight comes to a climax when he recognizes Jesus as the son of man and worships him. The healing of his physical blindness is a sign of the deeper healing he underwent, the healing of his ability to recognize Jesus. This progressive vision is paralleled by the regressive vision of some of the Pharisees. As a man comes to see Jesus more and more, these others become more and more blind. Though able to physically see, they remain in the dark valley, unable to recognize the shepherd who wants to lead them to good pasture and to prepare a table before them. It's also to, important to know how the man was healed. First, Jesus takes mud mixed with his saliva and anoints the man's head, specifically his eyes. Then he tells the man to go wash in water. Already, you should recognize some parallels to our psalm. Jesus is the deeper meaning of Psalm 23. A couple other details are worth noticing. First, the pool of water is called Siloam, and John is careful to translate it for us. It means scent. John sees here and wants us to see a deeper spiritual truth being conveyed through the man washing at this pool. The man is able to see because he is washed in Jesus. All right, let's unpack this. Though it's never used directly as a title, scent is arguably John's favorite way to refer to Jesus. The word scent is used 40 times to designate Jesus throughout this gospel. As an example, you can look at uh, chapter 5, verse 38, where Jesus says, You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So why does John make sure we know that Siloam means sent? Because he wants us to understand the deeper message of this healing. On one level, the man's physical healing involved washing in some pool called Siloam. But his spiritual healing, his ability to see Jesus, this came from being washed in the one scent. How is one washed in the one scent? Through faith and the sacrament of faith, which is baptism. It should come as no surprise, then, that the church has always connected this reading from John with the sacrament of baptism. Since the early church, it's been used in the Lenten baptismal scrutinies, as it will be used this Sunday, and in ancient catacomb art, the story is depicted in connection with baptism. It is through baptism that, in the language of Hebrews, one is enlightened or enabled to see truly Jesus. And so returning to our psalm, we see that Christ and the sacraments almost jump off the page. The Good Shepherd leads us to the still waters of baptism, anoints us as kings like David in baptism and confirmation, and he sets the table of the Eucharist before us. Because of the fidelity and love of this shepherd, we can have confidence and peace even in the midst of the dark valley and with our enemies in sight. We can say, as the Holy Spirit directs us, the Lord is my shepherd. 
there is nothing I shall want.